Okay, so today's verse is a little bit long, but Pastor Sangmin will be covering all of Ruth 1, but I will only be reading from uh, verses 8 through 18, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of God. Good afternoon. For the next few weeks, we are going to be walking through the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It is a story that is well-loved. Maybe none of you guys, maybe some of you guys haven't gone through the book of Ruth, but if you have, you know it is what we already read. There's so much there, so much drama, so much life. And one of the reasons, uh, personally, I love this story. I, I preached through this, I think, about three, four years ago through this book. It has all the elements of a great story. Anyone love stories? And it was Avatar. Avatar came out. Great, great stories. It has an engaging plot, interesting characters. There's tension, romance, conflict, and people overcoming hardship. It is a wonderful story of triumph and love, right? There's also this beautiful love story between Boaz and Ruth. We'll get to that. Yet, the author, I believe the author and the purpose of the book has far greater reason, far, far greater purpose. It's not simply trying to tell a great love story. It is actually a, a wonderful, helpful book in unpacking this year's theme. Right? This year's theme uh, for our church is just on the poster grit. If you, if you didn't pick one up last week, do pick one up, put it in the fridge, and start praying. Right? It, I think it is a wonderful way to sort of launch our theme for the year. The Lord has given us a word, grit. And I think Ruth helps us in so many ways. We said last week, biblical definition of grit isn't simply about putting our heads down and pushing ahead no matter what is in the way. True grit, biblical grit, is produced only through experiencing true generosity and grace. That's what we talked about last week. Just like the trees planted by the streams of living water in Psalm 1, it is 
first and foremost, God and his generosity that brings the transformation that you and I need. It is God and his generosity and his true grace that produces true grit in each of us. So Ruth's story begins with a very important piece of information. Verse 1, we, we didn't read that, but if you, if you open up your apps, your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the days when, judges, when the judges ruled, and why were the judges leading in the first place? That's a very important piece of information for us. In fact, if you read throughout the book of Judges, and, and especially towards the end, chapter 21, 25, it says it was because there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes because there was no righteous king. You see, underneath the story of Ruth, there's a greater story, the story of God, who is wholeheartedly committed to his people. And we'll see that as we unpack the book. God will use ordinary people like Naomi, like Ruth, like Boaz, like others, to tell us about the true and righteous king. So at the end of chapter 4, the author concludes, if, if, you, if you go towards the end of book of Ruth, chapter 4, the author concludes this beautiful, love, wonderful, dramatic story by giving us a list of boring Hebrew names. You're like, why would you end with Hebrew names? You see, what the author is trying to tell us is that this is more than just a romantic story between two Jewish men and women. It's actually about how God is going to include this foreign Moabite woman into the kingdom family. And in the end, she will play an important role in bringing Christ. So Ruth, chapter 1. Again, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... Right off the start, we learn, again, a great deal about the context of the story. This, the time when judges ruled Israel, when Israel had no king, it was even worse than the time when they did have these terrible, not very great kings. Because, again, it says in Judges 21 that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You guys are some of you said teachers. Can you imagine going into the first class? With no rules. Can you imagine going there and just saying, hey, kids, just do whatever you think is right. Can you imagine as parents? What do you want for breakfast? Dad, what do we have for breakfast? Just eat whatever you think is right. I'll eat ice cream, hamburger, cheeseburger, right? Chaotic. So Ruth's story takes place in an extremely chaotic time for God's people. So much so that the book of Judges, again, ends with this word. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's probably the best way to describe what life was like for God's people at the time. An era filled with disobedience, idolatry, greed, and hatred. And it's in this backdrop, Ruth enters the story, the story of God. Verse 1b, it says, A Bethlehemite, someone who's from Bethlehem, a man named Elimelech, moves his whole family to a foreign country. We know to be country of Moab, modern-day Jordan. Uh, Moab was a small kingdom southeast of Bethlehem. It was a completely independent state with its own leadership, laws, and more importantly, a nation of idol worshipers. They, 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 they did not fear Yahweh. They did not worship Yahweh. They were not Israelites. Complete foreign city. You see, moving your family 
away from your city of origin seems like not a big deal for, for modern-day people like you and I. We've all sort of moved here. Many of us have. We've moved to different places and we've lived in different cities. Not many of us live in a city where we're from. But back in the days, things didn't work like that. Moving your whole family away from the city of your origin was a big deal, especially for Jews, especially for Israelites, because how would they worship? It wasn't like they could just build their own Jewish temple. It wasn't like they could just hire a Jewish priest. There was no altar, no place of worship. So this was a big deal. And the author tells us they moved because there was a famine in the land, in the city of God, in Bethlehem. There's a famine out of necessity, out of desperation. This man, Elimelech, moves his whole family. Verses 3 and 5, we're just going to walk through this story. Just have your apps open. Verses 3 and 5, chapter 1. The story moves very, very quickly from there. It just fast forwards, like 10 years. And while living in the land as immigrants, right? Elimelech, Naomi, and the two sons, they are not in their home. Naomi, though the wife, she not only loses her husband, we don't know why, we don't know what happened, but husband passes, Elimelech is gone. But her two sons, the two sons that she had, they both marry non-Jewish wives, which is also a big deal because Jews did not marry people of different faith. Right? You see throughout Old Testament, people sent, right? I think Sarah or Rebecca, they send people. Right? They send their servants go find wives for their sons because they want them to marry Jewish wives. And here we see, again, Naomi maybe doesn't have the means. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. Her two sons marry foreign wives. Again, big deal. Then soon after, tra- tragedy strikes again for Naomi. Naomi's two sons, we don't know what happened, we don't know why, both pass away without any sons, which is a big deal in the Eastern culture, right? Some of us grew up in Korea. I remember growing up in Korea. Old school people love sons because they could continue the family name. Well, for Jews, it was similar but even more heightened, the idea of having sons and, and sons carrying names. Both sons passed without having any children. In a patriarchal society, being widowed without sons meant you were extremely vulnerable to all kinds of abuse, all kinds of suffering, no protection, right? Five verses in, verses one to five, already the focus of the story quickly narrows to Naomi, focuses on this older, older lady, this foreign lady, this widowed lady, Naomi. And the implicit question hangs in the air. What's the question? Will Naomi ever recover from this? If you can imagine this, this being a movie, already five minutes into, you're like, will Naomi ever, will things ever look up for her? What future does Naomi have? No sons? No one to carry the name? No husband? So verse 6, Naomi, a widow, a foreign widow, struggling just to survive. Here's the news 
from Moab that in her city, or in her home, Bethlehem, the text says the Lord has visited his people and given them food. So now the place where there was no food, there is food now. So with heavy heart and glimmer of hope, Naomi begins her journey back to her home, back to Jerusalem. And surprise, surprise, her two daughters-in-law joins the journey. It's important to note that Orpha and Ruth had every reason to remain in Moab. That's their home. They do not have husbands. Naomi does not have a child in her womb. There's no future for them. Yet, to everyone's shock, they decide to follow their mother-in-law. What hints at the type of bond that they had formed. Author doesn't give us these details, but we can tell by the actions of these women that there was this close-knit, this close bond between the three women. Perhaps it was her courage, Naomi's courage, in coming to Moab in the first place to provide for her family. Perhaps it was the way she picked herself up after the death of her husband, Elimelech, and care for her family alone. It may even have been her faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of the whole earth that drew these two young Moabite women to their mother-in-law, a faith so different. Yet again, we will never know because the author omits all these wonderful details. Nonetheless, the three women begin this journey from Moab back to Jerusalem, I mean back to Bethlehem together. As they are on their way, Naomi no longer wants Orpha and Ruth to join her on this trip. Naomi has change of heart. Not because she wants to be alone. If you listen to their conversation, not because Naomi feels burdened by these women. It's because she cares too much for her daughters-in-law. She knows herself. She knows fully well what type of life awaits for them in a, in a foreign land. She knows what it means to be a wid widow, a foreign widow, an immigrant family without protection, without help, without any type of, uh, with any type of covering. She knows what kind of life awaits for these two daughters when they cross board to Bethlehem. So she tells them in verse 8, go back, find new husband, start over. It's not too late. It's maybe too late for me, but it's not too late for you. And then the story gets more dramatic. Ruth and Orpha looks at their mother-in-law, who is like this, this breakup, looks at mother-in-law and refuses to go, refuses to comply. If you can imagine how close they have been by this time. For over a decade, they lived under one roof. Together, they walked through many seasons of life, mostly painful, consoling one another. Every time someone lost their husband, they would console one another, stick together, try to survive in a foreign land. Yet, verse 12, Naomi becomes even more determined to send them back. She says, why will you go? Verse 12. I'm old. I have no more sons. Even if I find a husband today, I can't have son in my old age. Then here's the clincher. Here is the haymaker. She says, perhaps the very word she's been holding back for years and years, yet she can't hold him back. Verse 13b, she says, 
leave because the hand of the Yahweh, hand of the Lord had gone out against me. I could almost imagine in some ways how relieved Naomi must have felt to say these things out loud. Perhaps the words that she's been thinking for years and years. There is a sense of relief at the same time. Perhaps a sense of guilt. Perhaps shame. Yet if, you th- if she thinks back, she's only done what every mother would have done in the same situation. In fact, it wasn't even her decision. It was her husband's decision to move the family out of Bethlehem. Yet she now returns home with nothing to show for. She lost her husband, her two sons, no heir to continue the family name. Then to hear the news... In verse 6b, the Lord has visited his people and gave them food. God visited his people. She thinks, am I not one of them? Am I no longer favored by God? Has leaving Bethlehem perhaps been a terrible mistake? Many conflicting thoughts cross her mind as she walks and journeys back home. And friends, perhaps... In your walk with Jesus, as you walked along and as you worked, as walked in your faith journey, perhaps there has been moments when you also felt like, has God abandoned me? Or worse, is, is God punishing me for the wrong choices and decisions that I've made? Perhaps. I know I have. For one, if, if that's you, for one, God wants you and I to bring our honest feelings and emotions before him, right? You see, when, when you read different scholars and commentaries, Naomi is often viewed as someone who simply lacks faith. Naomi has no faith, and Ruth has great faith. Very black and white. Yet I think when I think about this story in, in my own sort of struggles, in my own challenged in seasons of bitterness and, and darkness, I think there's something good that we can glean even from Naomi's words in our passage. It's one, one thing that we can glean is Naomi is at least honest about how she really feels. She's at least honest and she's bringing these emotions to the Lord instead of just pretending like nothing is wrong. And and throughout the scripture, we see these honest prayers being prayed by godly people, godly men and women who are struggling, who are questioning, who are in doubt of God's goodness. They, They bring these honest prayers, prayers of disappointment, prayers of doubt and fear and mistrust. The book of Psalms is filled with prayers of lament that is utterly honest. Psalm 13, listen to this prayer. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I mean, continue on and on. Honest prayers. 
And I think God honors our honest prayers. And I think God is big enough to be able to handle our raw and honest prayers. Second, more importantly, God of the scripture, if we continue to see the, 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 the big narrative of the, of the Bible. God of the Scripture does not hold grudges. He is not the one who holds grudges. We hold grudges, but He does not. He does not enjoy seeing you and I suffer. That picture, can we go back to that image of the thunder from the hand? So a lot of times when we think about God, this is what we think about, right? A lot of us that grew up in a very strict home, this is what we think about. God is just ready to zap me. The next mistake I make. But that's not the picture of God that the biblical writers have, have drawn for us. In fact, he's God who wants you and I to turn to him. Does that mean God allows no suffering in our lives? No, of course not. He allows suffering. And yes, he allows seasons of challenge, seasons of setbacks and pushbacks and seasons of obstacles. Yet again, God allows those experiences, when you look at Scripture, to draw you and I to himself. That's the purpose behind these events and obstacles and challenges. And here in the first chapter, if you step back and and step back from Naomi's confession and, and her bitterness, Naomi, even though she doesn't know what's happening out of her pain and suffering, where is she going? She's returning to Bethlehem. She's returning home. And soon we're going to see that she'll be greatly surprised by what God will do in Bethlehem. So, so friends, this means, and I've said this many times from this pulpit, God will call you and I. There are times God will call you and I to places that we do not want to go in order to produce in us something that we cannot attain in our own. Let me repeat. There are times God will call you and I to places we do not want to go. That could be your current situation at work, in your community, in your family, in your marriage, in your parenting. I'm parenting. I mean, can I, can I come about parenting? This morning, me and my number two, we were just going at it for like hours. I was exhausted. God will call you and I to places we do not want to go in order to produce in us something we cannot attain on our own. We see that throughout God sending people away. God sending people on this journey, not because he does not love them, not because he wants them to suffer, not because he's unforgiving God, he's a bitter God. No, because he wants his people to see him, to be drawn to him. In fact, as we talk about The idea of grit. The idea of grit. How do we become more gritty? How does one person become more gritty in our faith? Become stronger in our trust in God? You see, biblical grittiness is shaped when we choose. It matures and it's shaped when we choose to trust God even in the storm. Even in the fire, even in the hard and difficult, challenging seasons of life, grit grit grows when we come out of the other side of the storm holding on to his promises. 
There's not this idea of we fight the storm, we fight the fire. No, we can't. We're just barely holding on, just like the tree planted by the streams of water. But when we come out, barely holding on on the other side, God, God makes us stronger. Our faith grows. Our trust in Him grows. That's what happens. Amen? You guys struggling? This is word for you. Are you, do you. Do you not like your situation now? This is word for you. God wants to speak to you about this. That's why you're here today. Back to the passage, verse 14. Hearing Naomi's plead, Naomi telling his, her daughters, now go home, return. You're not, no future for you in, in Bethlehem. Orpha, one of the daughters-in-law, she counts the cost and she realizes she's not willing to go through with it. So she kisses Naomi and turns back home. Yet the other daughter-in-law, she's something else. Ruth, it says Ruth clung even harder to Naomi when Naomi tried to send her home. Right? Ruth will not be deterred. To, again, to everyone's shock, Ruth will remain by Naomi's side no matter what. Naomi has given her full blessing to be released. This is what you needed in that time if you were married and your husband passes. You needed the blessings from the family to be released. Naomi has given her full blessing, everything she needs. Even if she returns, no one's going to accuse her of leaving her family. This is her opportunity to start fresh, fall in love, have children, build a life. Yet this is how Ruth replies to Naomi's words. Do not urge me to leave you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Can you imagine saying this to your mother-in-law? This is a beautiful vow to, between uh, two lovers. But this is Naomi speaking to her mother-in-law. This is how much I'm committed to you. Some of you guys are like, no, I, I cannot. <laughs> Maybe. But, but these are words of someone whose life has been radically shaped by, by, by this God of Israel. Right over the years... Along the journey, Ruth has come to trust in, in, in Yahweh, the God of Israel. So verse 18, Naomi gives in. She knows Ruth is a stubborn one. Orpha, about 50% good. I got 50% fine. Ruth, this is your life. You made your decision. So they quietly now walk towards Bethlehem without any more words. Verse 19, after a long emotional journey, Naomi and Ruth finally arrives in Bethlehem. And small town, everybody talks, gossips, the news gets out quickly. Naomi returns home with nothing to show for to make the matters worse. She returns home with a Moabite daughter-in-law, which is probably more shameful. In verse 19 and 20, we're already there. We're almost, we're almost done, guys. Can you believe it? Verse 19, 20, people show up. Auntie, uncle. People, people from the past show up to Naomi. And one by one, they ask Naomi, is it really you? Naomi, is that you? Are you the wife of Elimelech and you had two sons? What's, what's happened? You're back. And Naomi, verse 20, tells the townspeople that she is no longer Naomi. 
She is Naomi, but she is not Naomi, which meant pleasant. So I'm not pleasant. But she tells people, call me Mara. Everyone say Mara. Mara, which means bitterness. For God has dealt very bitterly with me. See, what we suspected earlier becomes quite clear. Naomi is all but convinced that God is punishing her family for leaving town when they did. Yet it's very important for us to note, the author mentions nothing of God's approval or disapproval of them leaving. Author could have said that. Author says nothing about it. There's no side commentary about whether that was right or wrong. Or how Elimelech and his two sons died in Moab. We could assume that they were being punished. But we don't know. The author doesn't say it. Only the fact that Naomi has returned alone with Ruth. All this has happened. We don't know why. They've returned home. But if you unpack Naomi's words, if you just read between the lines of Naomi's words in chapter 1, it's become quite clear deep down inside she believes that she's being punished for moving away from Bethlehem. She believes only if she had stayed, life would be different. None of this would have happened. My husband would still be here. My sons would have married a Jewish woman and and our lives would be different. She, 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 deep down inside, there is this shame. There's this guilt And after so many years, she had not forgiven herself. It's it's quite clear that her bitterness towards God is tied to her unwillingness to to forgive herself for her past decision to leave town. You see, every form of bitterness, if you think about bitterness and bitter people and your own seasons of being bitter towards somebody, towards something, Often it is closely tied to our inability to forgive. Oops, inability to forgive. Inability to forgive others, and maybe just like Naomi, inability to forgive ourselves. Naomi's bitterness in our passage finds, I believe it finds its roots in her own, her own inability to forgive. Forgive her husband, Elimelech, for the decision that he's made for the family, but also more importantly, forgive herself. That's why she names herself Mara, bitterness. I'm not pleasant. You see, throughout my years of pastoral ministry, 15-some years, I've counseled many people, many Christians, who live with extreme sense of guilt and shame. In our culture, Seoul, Korea, this is a very heavy shame culture. Shame is what gets you to do the right things. I, I used to live in an apartment across my current apartment. And they used to post up pictures of, um, they still do pictures of people. They let their dogs go number two outside. And they, there'd be these like CCTV footages. And I used to think, why would they do that? This is so weird. And I realized in this culture, it's not guilt, it's actually shame. If your face is on the elevator showing that you're not doing something right, next time you're going to think about not cleaning up after your dog. Carrying shame. 
I've met many people carrying shame, even as Christians, carrying shame for years and years. We do something we never thought we could do, a sin against a spouse, child, unborn baby, a close friend, or the like. The guilt snowballs. Despair lingers. Secular psychologists argue that the battle to forgive oneself is rooted in a struggle to shed shame and blame. So the goal becomes feeling better about oneself. Right? This is a huge thing about forgiving yourself. Very popular. And they say, feel better about yourself. Better self-care. Love yourself. Be kind to yourself. Others advocate dealing with self-forgiveness off the bad things you've done. They tell you to preach to yourself good things that you have done. And as you meditate on what an amazing person you are, you can leverage self-forgiveness. There are other advices and ideas about how to forgive ourselves for our past mistakes. But in the end, surpassing the crooks of self-forgiveness has nothing to do with secret technique rooted in self-actualization, self-esteem, or something else. None of these things actually really work in the end. Why? Because self-forgiveness clashes with the definition of forgiveness itself. Okay, don't fall asleep. Follow with me. I I do not want to bore you, but here's the truth. You see, self-forgiveness, idea of forgiving yourself clashes directly with the definition of forgiveness itself. Let me explain. You see, every forgiveness requires a transaction between multiple parties. We have have some lawyers in, in the room, right? In which a debt is acknowledged by the perpetrator, pardon requested, and pardon granted by the victim. This is how forgiveness works. You do something wrong, you recognize it, you, you tell somebody, I'm sorry, let me make it up. And the person says, okay, you can make it up. And you pay the price, there's forgiveness done. The issue has nothing to do with me transacting with myself, but everything, everything to do with others, those, those who we have hurt. This is why self-forgiveness does not work. So how are we to be set free from guilt and shame, years of guilt and shame? Contrary to what we have been told, what we really need is not forgiving ourselves. It's about being forgiven. Forgiven by someone who has paid the cost. Someone who has paid our debt. You see, God's forgiveness matters more than what you think about yourself. Receiving His forgiveness reminds you and I that our proper and only place in this matter is the offender that we have sinned. Let's go one layer deeper. Whenever we say, I can't forgive myself, you've you've heard people say it, you've said it yourself, we're attempting, what we're really saying is, we're attempting to establish our own standard of righteousness apart from God. What we're really trying to say, when we say, I can't forgive myself, what we're really saying is, I really haven't lived up to my own perfect standards. Or I haven't lived up to other people's expectations. Our parents, our children, our boss, our coworker. Friends, living that way, I I could tell you from first-person perspective, I I could tell you, Living that way is not sustainable in the long run, too. It is downright miserable. 
Guilt and shame will continue to cripple you. Bitterness, you will not be able to escape bitterness. Trust me on this. I, I, I've lived that myself. And this is why the lesson of Ruth chapter 1 is not be more like Ruth. Look at Ruth. What an amazing daughter she is. That's not the lesson. It's not don't be like Naomi. Look at Naomi. She has no faith. That's not the lesson either. No, the lesson is we need true forgiveness. We need a Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the gospel. And this is where I'll I'll close. The Creator God. The gospel says the Creator God. The one who knew no sin. The one who lived a sinless, perfect life. Died a sinner's death for you and I. He paid our debt. Remember that picture of money? He paid our debt for us with his own life. And his final moment as he hung on that tree, what does he cry? He cries, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Friends, this is the only way to be rescued from the life of bitterness, guilt, and shame. It is not try harder. It is not try to forget. It is not be nice to yourself. It is trust Jesus, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his forgiveness, him paying for our sins. You see, Ruth in our story in chapter 1 exists to point us not to ourself, but to the true hero of our story, again, Jesus Christ. Just as Ruth clung onto Naomi who wanted to depart from her, Christ pursued you and I even when we were enemies of God. That's what scripture says. Just as Ruth left her home, Moab, to pursue, to serve, to follow Naomi, Christ left his home to pursue, to serve, to come, and to rescue us. He became one of us. Paul says, who Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God. It is something to be grasped. He did that for you. He did that for me. Ruth's confession, this beautiful confession in walls of churches. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. This is Jesus' declaration of his love for you and me. The only difference is unlike Ruth's commitment to Naomi, death couldn't undo Jesus' commitment to us. Through his own death, he has defeated death. And only by giving our lives to him, we can truly begin to live. And I believe that's the message of Ruth chapter 1. That's the secret to forgiveness. That's the way we are set free from our guilt and shame and we become more gritty in our commitment to him. Amen? Amen? Man, I couldn't breathe at the end. All right, I got to drink some water. But that's the beauty of the story of Ruth. It's not about Ruth. Look at Ruth. What a great woman. She is a great woman. But it's about showing Christ, who Jesus is. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story. So much in the story. So many ways we can study the story. We can dissect the story and learn from the story. And Lord, it is my prayer that we would be able to see Jesus through the actions of Ruth. It is our prayer, my prayer that if anyone is sitting here with bitterness, 
with guilt and shame, unforgiveness, that you would release them, Lord. That you, Holy Spirit, would show them that we have been truly forgiven by the one whose opinion only matters. So I pray, Lord, free us in this new year as we enter 2023. Release us from all kinds of bitterness and guilt and shame. That we do not nullify the cross of Jesus Christ by living in prison life when you've come to set us free. I pray that blessing over everyone here today. I pray that release for everyone over here today. Holy Spirit, would you help us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.